0: Let me encourage you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. Exodus 20 verse 16. Those of you who are visiting with us this morning might want to know that we are working our way one by one through the Ten Commandments. And this morning we've come to the Ninth Commandment, which we find here in Exodus 20 verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now the ninth commandment begins with a simple clause. You shall not bear false witness. And let's just stop there. Because we need to ask, what does that mean, bear false witness? It's not a phrase that we use in our everyday language. So what does it mean to bear false witness? It sounds like courtroom language, doesn't it? It sounds like something that you might be told... As you climbed up into the witness stand in a court of law, you shall give honest testimony before this court. You shall not bear false witness. We all understand what that means. A witness is someone who is to give testimony to the truth. And therefore, a false witness is someone who knows the truth and who chooses not to tell the truth. So Exodus 20, verse 16 is courtroom language. This commandment is concerned with telling the truth. So if you were teaching this to a child and you wanted to boil it down for them, they might not understand the phrase bear false witness, at least at a young age. You might just tell them the ninth commandment is about truth. Do not tell lies is God's will for us in the ninth commandment. It's courtroom language. Now the courtroom isn't the only place or even the main place where you and I might be tempted to bear false witness, but it is a helpful place to begin our examination of the ninth commandment. When a person is called to give testimony in a court of law, what oath is he asked to swear? He's asked to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, isn't he? The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now that's not a direct quote from the Bible. But I believe it is an excellent summary of what it means to be completely honest. And isn't that the intent of the ninth commandment? That we not just tell the truth when our left hand is on the Bible and our lips are under oath, but that we be completely honest in all of our dealings? I think so. I think that's God's will for us in the ninth commandment. Because as I thought about the ninth commandment this week and I thought about what it meant to tell the truth and then I thought about all the various ways that we might fail to tell the truth, it seemed to me that all the examples I thought of fell under one of those three categories. Either truth, whole truth, or nothing but the truth. And so I think our founding fathers got it right. If we are going to be completely honest, then we must tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so I want us to think about the ninth commandment this morning and preach from Exodus twenty sixteen. But I want us to think about the ninth commandment and I want us to think about truthfulness under those three headings. Truth, whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So first, the truth. Most obviously, the ninth commandment does teach us to tell the truth. And telling the truth most obviously means that we do not lie. We do not lie. That's the most clear thing we could say from Exodus 20.16. You shall not lie. But before you breathe a sigh of relief, Before you begin to think to yourself, as many of us do, well, I'm not a liar. You know, I hear people say this. I hear Christians say this. And I've said it. Someone tells a lie to us, and we know that they're telling us a lie, and we report this to our friends, and we say, I can't believe she lied like that. I would never do that. So many of us don't think of ourselves as liars. And so we might not think of ourselves as needing to hear what the Ninth Commandment says. But before we chalk One point up in our favor, thinking how good we are at telling the truth. Listen to Psalm 116, verse 11. Psalm 116, verse 11 says, All men are liars. Blanket statement. All men are liars. So you may not think of yourself as a liar, but according to the psalmist, all of us are. The question is, why do so many of us not see ourselves as, the way the Bible clearly portrays us. Why don't we see ourselves as liars when the Bible says that we are? I think the disconnect comes from the fact that many of us are so good at lying and so frequent at lying that we can lie and hardly even realize that we're doing it. We can lie and hardly even realize we're doing it. White lies, we call them. How tall are you? I'm about 6'1". I'm sorry I didn't call you back. I just got your message. I don't know if any of you have said that this week. So, can I speak to Toby, please? Um, she's not here. Who is it? Oh, you don't want to talk. She's not here. You ever do that? It's lying. It's lying. Were you wearing your seatbelt? Yes, officer. Had it on the whole time. All of us lie a lot more than we think. We're more proficient at it than we realize. And if we're going to start to fight against the sin of dishonesty, we need to start right there at the basic bottom line, simple thing. Don't tell flat out lies. Whether it's a telemarketer or whether it's someone who wants to know how much you weigh or whatever it is, don't lie to people. If you tell little lies, you're going to build a habit of telling lies when it's a lot more crucial. But there are other ways in which we fail to tell the truth in outright lying, and that's what I want us to think about. What about false promises? False promises. When we lived in Mississippi, I used to go door to door and knock on people's door and invite them to church, especially in the weeks leading up to the start of this new church that was started there. And I would knock on the door and people would answer. They're a little bit different, uh, more deceitful, I guess, in Mississippi about religion anyway, than they are here. Because here you knock on the door and they just tell you, I don't care about your church. But there we would knock on the door and I would tell them that this church is starting and I'd invite them to come. And they would say, oh, wow, that sounds great. When, do the, when are the services? I think I'm going to come. And so the first Sunday we met, because of the response I'd gotten in the community, I set up 32 chairs. It doesn't sound like a lot to you, but with just Toby and I starting out, 32 chairs was a lot, because all these people had told me they were going to come, and we had five people counting the two of us. Five people out of all those folks that said they'd come. And we need to think about that, and you need to ask yourself, do I have a habit of promising people that I'll call, or that I'll write, or that I'll pray, or that I'll be there, when I really have no serious intentions of following through on that. It's not, I told him I'd pray and then something came up and I forgot. It's, I'll tell him that because it sounds like the right thing to say. Oh, we're praying for you. False promises are deceit, they are lies. What about flattery? Flattery. A couple of years ago, and this is a small church in a secular community, so, so think of that in the backdrop, but a couple of years ago, a lady from the community who's not uh, a believer came to me, uh, and, and we were working on something in the community, and she said, you know, I want you to know that so many people that I meet in Pleasant Ridge talk about what a wonderful pastor they have at the Baptist church. I hope they say that, but I'm realistic, and I thought to myself, most people in the neighborhood don't even know who I am. A lot of them don't even know that there is a Baptist church, unfortunately. So either she's talking to a whole different group of people than I normally talk to, or she's lying through her teeth trying to impress me. That seems normal. It doesn't seem wrong in our culture, but I think that it's a breach of the Ninth Commandment to flatter people. Some of us are really good at this. You don't really like your neighbor lady's pottery collection. You don't really think your boss's new suit is all that dashing, but it might work to your advantage someday down the road if you put a little bit of extra butter on the sweet rolls for them. Flattery is deceit. Telling someone lies in order to gain an advantage from them. And what about false business claims? This doesn't affect all of you, but some of you it does. Some of you it may someday. False business claims. You can't tell someone that you have the best widgets and that you're selling them at the rock-bottom prices unless you have actual facts to back that up. And a lot of us do that about a lot of other things. This is the best such-and-such in the world, and we have no real way to say that. But it's especially sinful when we're doing it and taking advantage of people and getting their money for it. So we need to tell the truth. I think that's simple enough. We also need to tell the whole truth. The whole truth. And some of us are quite proficient at telling the truth, but leaving out the parts that aren't advantageous for us. And again, you don't have to teach this to your children. They come with this programmed in. So your wife asks you, Honey, what did you have for lunch today? A sandwich. Which is true, but you don't tell her about the chips and the salsa and the Dr. Pepper and the two pieces of pie that rounded out the meal. That rounded out your figure as well. On a more serious note, parents want to know where you were on Friday night, young people, and you tell them, oh, we were at Angela's house, which is true. But you don't tell them that you also were at Bobby's house where you know that you're forbidden to go. Not telling the whole truth is deceit. Half-truth is still a lie. And while we're thinking about whole truth, I want to say something about deceitful silence as well. Deceitful silence. I was in a meeting not too long ago where an exchange of money was being discussed. And during the course of the meeting, one of the members of my party um, made a statement about the money that we were uh, hoping to get from these folks. And the statement wasn't entirely accurate. Now, this person's misstatement was a mistake. She wasn't trying to be deceitful. But I knew that the misinformation was incorrect. And I also knew that if they thought that what she said was true, it might work in our favor. So then I was in a little bit of a jam because I wasn't the one who would misspoken, but I was the one who knew the truth and I was the one who had a chance either to speak up and tell the whole truth or to keep silent and be deceitful by doing so. Some of you may be in similar situations. Some of you it may be in business deals where misinformation is given that might work to your advantage. For some of you it might be when the waitress gives you too much change back. Or, it might be for you when you're in a conversation with someone where someone's name is being dragged through the mud by all sorts of shaky or false, unfounded accusations. In all those situations, you have a choice. You can either open your mouth and tell the whole truth, or you can remain silent. And in remaining silent, you can live with a guilty conscience knowing that you, by your silence, were a deceiver. So we need to tell the truth We need to tell the whole truth and not leave things unsaid that are important. Thirdly, we need to tell nothing but the truth. Some of us sometimes may not be able to be pinned down for an actual lie, but we can be deceitful and hurtful nonetheless, even though we're not technically lying. One way, maybe the most popular way, That we fail to tell nothing but the truth is when we pass along unfounded speculations about other people. There's a good old fashioned church kind of word for that gossip. Gossip. Passing along unfounded accusations or speculations about other people's lives and their problems. And just because Fanny called you on the phone and said that she heard that Thelma and Ralph were having marital problems doesn't mean that it's true doesn't mean that it's true. And even if it is true, that's not something that you should be passing along, is it? But we're mainly thinking about untruth here. If we're going to be people who tell nothing but the truth, then we're going to have to clip down our grapevines. Stop listening to things through the grapevine and stop passing things along through the grapevine. We're going to have to keep our lips from idle chatter, as Paul tells us to do. Solomon goes so far as to say that we should not even associate with a gossip. That's Proverbs 20.19. Some of you should write that down. Because some of you are in the in the phone call chain. Maybe by your choice, maybe not by your choice. But if you're in... I don't mean the prayer chain. I just mean the, the chain of people who are calling and saying, you know, a lot of people are saying, or I heard that. If you're in that chain, whether it's at your job, or whether it's on the phone with church people, or whoever it is, you need to write down Proverbs 20.19 somewhere right by your phone. Because it says, do not associate with a gossip. That means if someone is known to gossip and you have caller ID, just don't pick up the phone. Or if you don't have caller ID and you pick up the phone and they start to tell you some juicy story and they begin with, a lot of people are saying, or I heard that, or so and so said that, you just say, hey, the Bible says don't associate with a gossip. Bye. Now, you might do it a little bit more gently, but I'm serious, and Solomon is serious. Passing along unfounded information about people is gossip, it's a breach of the ninth commandment. God hates it. And as we're going to see in a few moments, it can ruin people's lives. It can ruin people's lives. So I wonder if you have the strength to put up your hand, to refuse to listen, to not associate with a gossip. Also, thinking about telling nothing but the truth, what about exaggeration? Some of us are good at this as well, especially if you grew up like I did in the South. It's, it's just kind of a, an art form. But it's, it's sinful. Somebody walks out of church, man, he preached until 1 o'clock. Well, that's not true. But it's an exaggeration. Or, she never has anything nice to say. He's always late. I've been waiting here half an hour. Find yourself exaggerating in those kinds of ways? Making blanket statements or just blowing things out of proportion? All of us do it. Some of us do it more than others. Some of us do it better than others. But when we do so, what we're really doing is failing to tell nothing but the truth. We're adding things to the truth. Why do we do it? Sometimes it would be cute, but a lot of times we exaggerate so that we can put others down and we can take out our frustration on them, don't we? If you find yourself exaggerating, you just ask yourself, why did I do that? And I bet most of the time it's either so that you can put someone down or so that you can vent frustration towards them or about them. Furthermore, the person who tells tall tales in small, seemingly insignificant things will eventually find Himself doing so in things that are much more consequential. So that Jesus says in Luke 16, He who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If you can't be trusted to tell the truth about how long something was or how big something was or how many times somebody did X, Y, or Z, then you can't be trusted to tell someone something that's really important that might be life or death or that might be uh, in the realm of gossip or something else. He who's unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Finally, thinking about telling nothing but the truth Let me say that there's a way that you can technically tell the truth and still be deceitful in doing it. You know the scenario. Little Johnny's mom calls you and says, hey, we're having a birthday party two Saturdays from today for little Johnny. And you don't have any interest in going to the birthday party. But you can't say to her, hey, I don't care about the party. I don't want to come. I've got better and more fun things to do. But you also feel guilty to tell an outright lie. You can't just say, well, we can't come because we've got to do X, Y, or Z. You don't want to do that. Some of you don't want to do that anyway. So what if some of us do? I've done this before. You, before you call her back, you call the hairdresser and you make an appointment for the exact same day and time that the party's happening so that you can call her back now and tell her the truth. I can't come. I have a hair appointment but really be deceitful in doing it. And so you say to her, well, I'm really sorry I can't come to the party, which is not true. I'd love to have been there, but I've got a hair appointment just that time. Bad luck. Tell Johnny I said happy birthday, though. Truth that is deceitful. That's not telling nothing but the truth. Think about those things. As you do, I realize that, that some of the examples that we've thought about this morning have been somewhat comical. And in one sense, they should be. Because we get the joke because we've been there and done that. Right? That's why some of these things make us laugh. Because we've done them. All of us are deceivers. And when someone shows us our folly up on a screen, we see how ridiculous we look. But I want you to hear this well. Well, It's not so funny when you're on the wrong end of the lies or the gossip or the exaggeration or the false promises, is it? It's not so funny then. So we may laugh at ourselves and some of that may be healthy, but our laughter should also turn to mourning when we get to the end of Exodus 20.16. Because Exodus 20.16 says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor he's saying he's saying and we need to remember that all of our lies, big or small have great potential to harm our neighbor that's one reason why it's so wrong because lies harm our neighbor and they snowball into bigger lies and bigger habits of deceit which lead to bigger sins against our neighbor even the small ones have great potential for harm So the end of Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, reminds us that deceit and gossip and flattery and false promises and all the other things actually can do great harm to our neighbor. You know, we already knew that. You know how I know that we knew that? Because the whole reason why we deceive is so that we can harm our neighbor. That's why we do it in the first place. So this verse doesn't just tell us the bad results of deceit. It also tells us what the motivation is. The reason why we deceive, the reason why we bear false witness, the reason why we do that is to protect and promote ourselves at the expense of other people. Say that again. The reason we deceive is to protect and promote ourselves at the expense of other people. So that when you make false promises, you do so to get other people off your back, don't you? push them aside doesn't matter if I show up doesn't matter if I really pray just just get them out of the way I've got other things I need to think about when we make false business claims we do so in order to get other people's hard-earned money into our pockets bear false witness against our neighbor when we flatter other people it's so that they will treat us well so we can get something out of them when we flat out lie we're doing so so that we can prevent people from having information that we think might work for them or work against us. Lying is just selfishness. That's the bottom line. It's me first and others far down the list. We bear false witness against our neighbors. You need to remember that the next time you're tempted to lie. Whatever it is, whether it's you think it's a little white lie or whether it's a great big whopper, you need to remember that all lying is sin. And it's sin, not least of all, because it's a selfish act meant only to promote yourself at the expense of other people. Now I want to shift gears for a moment. And I want you to think with me about religious lies. Because one of the places that we lie most often might just be in church. So, there's a few weeks ago. Brian Edwards, about the third commandment, said, Christians don't tell lies, they just sing them in their hymns. Well, the first part of that is not true. Christians do tell lies. Some of us have been doing it this week. But the second part is definitely true. Christians lie in church. Let me mention two categories of religious lies for you to think about. First, lying about yourself. Lying about yourself. That's one form of religious deceit. We lie about ourselves by covering up or denying our sin, don't we? Come to church and put on a happy face and try to pretend like everything's okay. Don't let anyone hold us accountable. Don't let anyone see us sweat. Certainly don't admit the problems that we're having. 1 John 1.10, however, says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. Him being God. If we say that we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar, and we're deceiving ourselves. Now, that's a scathing indictment. It really is, because isn't it a pretty regular occurrence to hear church folks denouncing everyone else but themselves? Calling out everyone else's sin but their own. And then those same folks, and you and I are sometimes among them, when someone puts their finger on our sins, we are so quick to throw up the hand, to defend ourselves, to get angry, and to say, I don't know what you're talking about. Isn't that true? And that's the kind of people that 1 John 1:10 is about. It's not the people that walk around and say, "Oh, there's no moral absolutes, and so I don't I don't do anything wrong." I mean, it's for those people, but this is written to folks in the church. 1 John is. And he says to people in the church, "If you're trying to deny your sin or cover up your sin or focus on everyone else's sin so that you don't have to think about your own, you're calling God a liar and you're lying to yourself." Now, none of us would come out and say, or "Very few of us, I hope. None of us would say, "I don't sin." you're talking about sin i don't sin but we do say that through our self-righteous attitudes don't we self-righteousness is not only repugnant to other people it's not only a slap in the face to christ who died for us to say well i'm not a sinner i don't need a savior slap in the face to him but it's also just flat out deceit mainly we're deceiving ourselves so, we lie about ourselves. Furthermore, when we make a profession of faith in Christ and then continue to live a carnal lifestyle, we're also lying there. Our profession of faith is a lie if we don't live it with actions and in truth. We're claiming to be something that we're not. If someone came to your office and claimed to be a millionaire and you knew that they couldn't even pay their electric bill, you'd say, He's a liar, or He's crazy, one. But how is it that people can walk into offices and schools all over the place and claim to be Christians when everybody can tell by the way they live? It's not true. It's not true. And they say to either they're liars or Christianity is bogus or they're crazy. They work with me and they, they do an okay job, so I guess they're not crazy. So they're either lying or this Christianity stuff is bunk. Now, Christians aren't perfect. But we are, by God's grace, supposed to be growing more like Christ. And if we're not, then there's something hypocritical going on in our profession of faith in Christ. Listen again to the Apostle John on this issue. First John 1 John 1.6 If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 2, four, The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. 1 John 4.20 If someone says I love God and hates his brother he is a liar. See what John is saying three different times? In all three of those verses he says that there's a divide between what we say and what we actually do. We say that we've come to know God, but we still walk in the darkness. Baloney. We say that we love God and we hate our brothers. Not true. We say that we have come to know Him, and yet we don't keep His commandments. We're lying. In all three cases, we say one thing and we do another, and we're liars. And some of us are. Some of us are better liars than others, but some of us aren't very good at this. Some of us can walk around and people around us know that we're not walking like a Christian. And we can try to convince them that we are by all of our words, but it's no more convincing than if you went to work tomorrow in a Cincinnati Bengals uniform and said, yeah, it was a really tough game last night. We pulled it out at the end. They're going to look at you and go, what are you talking about? You don't play for the Bengals. Yeah, look at their uniform they would be probably more likely to believe that than that God actually changes people or that we actually belong to Him based on the way some professing believers live. The proof is in the pudding. And when it comes to verbal professions of faith, they're important, but very often talk is cheap. Let us not love, and, and if I can add to what John says Paraphrasing, let us not live with words and tongue only, but with actions and in truth. Let us not lie about ourselves by calling ourselves something that we're not. Now, another way we rely, lie religiously is to lie about God. So, when we say one thing and live another, we're lying about ourselves with our words. But when we say one thing and live another, we're lying about God with our actions. Think it out. If we claim to be followers of Jesus, some people will believe us, won't they? Well, he's a Christian. He's a follower of Jesus. He said that he is, and so I'm going to take him in his word. He's a follower of Jesus. And so for those people who actually believe our profession of faith and take us at our word and then see us turn around and continue to live like carnal pagans, those people will be very confused, won't they? They will start to wonder what Christianity and Christ are really all about. we will give them a very distorted and untrue picture of Christianity and of Christ when we say one thing and live another. Now, we might go so far as to say that all sin, by professing believers, is in a sense lying about God and lying about His people, lying about what they're really like. Let me just give you a sample of that from the book of James, chapter 3, verse 14. James says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. What is James getting at? How is arrogance and selfish ambition deceitful? Here's what he's saying. When a Christian is jealous, when a Christian is selfish, his actions are a living lie about the truth of God. They give a false witness about what God is like. If those who are supposed to be the children of God don't look like God very much or very often, then they're living a lie that deceives everyone in their wake about what God and His people are really like. James says that about jealousy and selfish ambition. I think it can be said of all of our sins. When we sin as believers we are deceiving people about God. That puts a new level of seriousness on all sins, not just lying, but especially lying. Think about it. When a believer is known by his co-workers or his classmates as a deceiver, or when a believer is caught in a lie, what impression does that give of Christ and of Christianity? I'll tell you what it does. It makes it very difficult for unbelievers... To trust in, to believe in, to understand a Jesus who says that He is the truth. John 14, 6. How can this Jesus who claims to be the truth have followers who are so deceitful? It's amazing. You hear all the time about uh, preachers especially getting caught up in deceiving and sometimes it's deceiving about their sexual life, sometimes it's deceiving about money, but whatever it is, No wonder so many people look at us and laugh because they are Christians, not just pastors, but Christians all over the place who don't live very much like Jesus who is the truth. Talk about being a false witness against your neighbor. The worst thing that you can do for your neighbor is show him a religious lie with your lifestyle and drive him away from this Christ instead of drawing him to him. So let's resolve by God's grace not to live a lie about our God and about his Son. Now, what does God think about our lies? What does God think about this? Let me give you a few verses that describe heaven's vantage point on our deception. First is First Timothy one, nine through eleven. I won't read all the verses, but if you read those verses, you find Paul making a list of sins that are contrary to the gospel, he says. And he lists like this, those who kill their fathers or mothers, murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, and liars. See that? Those who kill their father and mother are on the same plane with those who lie, in the same list. Those who kidnap children are in the same list with those who deceive. That's important. We think of lying as a small thing, sometimes a necessary thing, at least a normal thing. It's in the same list. So if you've been following the case of Madeline McCann who went missing five months ago in Portugal, you realize, based on this verse, that in God's sight, the newspaper reporters who are smearing all sorts of unfounded accusations against her parents are just as guilty as those who kidnapped her. Because kidnappers and liars are in the same list of people who live contrary to the gospel. What does God say about those who lie about Him? Those of us who lead others astray with a scandalous testimony. Mark 9:42. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone tied around his neck he had been cast into the sea. That's what God thinks about our actions leading others astray from the truth. Just to get the summary statement on what God thinks about our lying, listen to Revelation 21, 8. For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So I ask you, is lying to your wife, is lying to your husband, is lying to your kids, is lying to your boss, is lying to the IRS really such a small thing? Seen through human eyes, maybe it is. But if we could see our deception, our gossip, our false promises from the vantage point of heaven, we would think again. We would not be so lighthearted about our sin. Liars will have their part in the lake of fire. So is that it? Is that the end of the sermon? Is there any hope? Of course there is. And to show you that there's hope, I want you to turn out of Exodus 20 now to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. This chapter, you can read it all later if you like, is the account of the Last Supper of Jesus and the arrest of Jesus and the trial of Jesus. And at the Last Supper, verse 30, Peter, in all his arrogance, proclaimed, everybody else is going to leave you, but I won't. I will stand strong. I will be faithful. I'm a real follower, Jesus. And Jesus replied there in verse 30, Truly I say to you that this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. And before the night and before the chapter are finished, Peter did so. You can read about it in verses 66 through 72. In fact, let me read those verses to you. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch, and a rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Peter flat out lied about the Lord Jesus. Peter bore false witness about the most important life and death matter in this world. The most important question in this world is, do you belong to Jesus? Are you one of them? Do you love him? And Peter three times lied through his teeth. At the most crucial point in human history, the the pivot point of all human history, Peter has a chance to stand for the truth and he lies three times. Is that the end for Peter? Seems like it would be, but the answer is no. Peter was restored. Peter was forgiven. Peter went on to a place of usefulness and honor in honoring God's kingdom. You can read all about that in the last chapter or two of the book of John. Peter's lies weren't the end of his story. And your lies and my lies don't have to be the end of ours either. Peter was forgiven and Peter was restored. Now, let me ask you what gives? It seems like I've shifted into a whole other sermon. Because God says in Revelation 21.8 that cowards and all liars will have their place in the lake of fire. And then he turns around and restores Peter, who is the most notorious of cowards and the most infamous of liars. What gives? How can God say liars go to the lake of fire and then forgive a liar, the liar, Peter? Well, because in between Peter's lies in Mark 14 and Peter's restoration in the end of the book of John, something very important happened, and you know what it is. After Mark 14, the Son of God was led out of that little courtyard where Peter had denied him three times, and they prodded him out of the city carrying his own cross and took him to a trash heap outside of Jerusalem, and there they crucified him. And as he breathed his last, he cried, It is finished. The Greek word is "telestai," which can mean it is finished, but also can mean paid in full. Paid in full. What was paid in full? Well, the punishment required for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, including Peter and including you and including me, paid in full, Jesus said. That's why Peter could be restored and that's why we can as well. So let me ask you if you've been lying. Let me ask you if you've been living a lie. Some of you perhaps have. Some of you have been rebelling God in an area completely different. But you know that you're sinning against God. I know that I haven't been who I should be. Not this day, not this week, not ever for one second in 30 years of life have I been the person that God calls me to be. And the Bible says about people like me that we deserve to have our place in the lake of fire. But thank God that the Bible also says it is finished. Thank God that the Bible also says paid in full. God's wrath that we deserve has been absorbed completely in Christ for all who believe. So let me just close by asking if you'd believe today. Some of you believe and you just need to remember and refresh yourself and continue to believe. And some of you need to believe today for the first time. Stop living a lie and really come to Christ today. Turn from your sins, whether they be lies or others, and embrace Christ And if you would, you would find that in your heart, he hands you a a receipt stamp paid in full. You would find that you'd be restored like Peter was, that you'd be forgiven like Peter was, that you'd be brought to a place of usefulness in God's kingdom like Peter was. So would you accept the paid in full that Jesus offers today?